All right, Pat, we got a big one today. Our second penultimate episode that we're covering over the course of the show. And this is also probably one of the biggest episodes of the show just in general. It's first major full-length episode action battle set piece with Blackwater. This is the second of four episodes officially written by George R.R. Martin. And this was a momentous episode to say the least. What are your thoughts going in? Hey, Dom, I think the Talking TV family will agree to me that there's no jokes here. This is a banger of an episode, and we're about to get into it. Absolutely. All that and more. Stay tuned. intro welcome back people episode 19 season 2 episode 9 our second penultimate episode we are talking about none other than the battle of black water today now you guys might ask how is it how are they going to cover they don't have like infinite 18 different storylines to cover so we're going to cover this episode a little bit differently today we're going to start it off we're going to talk about kind of like the overall impact of this episode that we had going forward a lot of stuff going into this episode obviously this is a big action set piece that we have to talk about and then the second half of the episode we're just going to break down again all the major beats that happen throughout it so this is an episode that was directed by director neil marshall who was kind of their action go-to guy for the first two major battle action piece episodes uh he obviously would also direct the battle of the wall the the watchers in the wall episode the penultimate episode for season four later on before he kind of got replaced by miguel sapachnik as the resident go-to you know big action set piece director and as far as this early on in the show's run this is kind of unmarked territory for them you know obviously we'd had like battles as backgrounds and then we had like characters getting knocked out right before the battle happened how convenient in order to kind of hide their uh their low budget but this was the first time obviously the battle of blackwater was a tremendous event from the books obviously being the thing that ended you know book two obviously which this season is based on a clash of kings and so this was going to be a tremendous thing and so i remember going in right after you know some of those early reactions back in the day going in and wondering like wow this is like a pretty pretty intense pretty intrinsic very detail oriented battle like how are they going to pull this off and i think by all intents and purposes way back in 2012 they nailed it and it was a momentous episode and it kind of in a way was another one of those episodes that kind of like changed television forever you know so pat what what were your thoughts going in like what do you remember about this episode from watching it back in the day <laughs> absolutely nothing no <laughs> Uh, so pretty man. much over the course, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, I'm just being contrarian here, but uh, no. Uh, you this never. Ep- this episode was basically, um, you know, it, it's everything comes together. It, it, you're wondering where the big battle sequences are in the first, you know, two seasons up to this point, and here it is. Like everything that you've sort of criticized the show for. Uh, you get to see happen and play out the way that you want to. So this is highly focused, all takes place in King's Landing, and it is definitely like probably the best episode of the early seasons. Yeah, absolutely. Like, there's a reason why, even with a lot of, even though this would easily be one up just from a technical scale by later on episodes like The Watchers on the Wall, like Hard Home, like Battle of the Bastards, like The Spoils of War, and then obviously the the two major action set piece episodes that we got in the last episode in the last season. Like, there's a reason why this episode it still rings itself up as like one of the best throughout the entire canon of the show. Just again, from a craft standpoint. From a storytelling standpoint, from a character standpoint, this episode is able to accomplish just so much and more. I I just I I think kind of first and foremost, the thing that I appreciate the most about this episode is for the fact that this is the first episode of the entire show that of the entire show right from the first episode. Right. Because even the first episode takes place across, you know, with two different storylines. You have the Winterfell storyline and then you have the the Pento storyline. But this is the first episode of the show that takes place entirely in one location, which the show had not done up until this point. And the fact that you're still checking in with like all of these different characters, all of these different settings, there's so much going on to building up to just this one battle. It kind of it pulls, again, a lot of the best from like, you know, kind of the old school Hollywood way of filmmaking as far as battles go. Obviously, there's a lot of influences from from Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies. You know, those movies have been credited for pretty much all of the major battle sequences with the exception of a few. But this one, it's like you can tell, like, like, Long Night has been compared to Helm's Deep, I think kind of unfavorably because I think the 
I think a reason part of a big reason why the Long Knight doesn't work is because it does a lot of things that Helm's Deep doesn't do. But I think this is a much better comparison to Helm's Deep, just as far as like the setup, how it's executed from minute one to minute zero, you know, from minute one to minute 54, however long this episode lasts. Like, it's really, really impressive, you know, from just all around standpoint. So uh, you want to get into this? Yeah, let's do it. Totally. It's, yeah. It's, hey, listen, you know, it's everyone's embedded in King's Landing. You got Tyrion trying to save the day. Everybody's sort of relying on him. And yet it's, hey, it's a tall order. Like Stannis is coming and he's probably going to win the day at the beginning of this episode. Absolutely. I'm almost waiting for like Bruce Banner to drop into the scene and wake up and be, you know, it's funny because there was even a one name drop in the episode where I'm like, wait, did they just fuck up and say Thanos instead of Stannis? But like, I, 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 I rewinded and I'm like, oh, okay, all right, all right. So they, they, they didn't do it. But like, I was almost waiting for Bruce Banner to like crash out and be like, Stannis is coming. Stannis, or like the one runner to come in and be like, Stannis is coming. Stannis is coming. But like, they never had that. So I was like, all right, good. So opening scene. So you open up, the ships are arriving in the Blackwater Bay. You have Davos talking to his son, Mathos. They're actually having like a really interesting conversation here where, uh, a couple things that I wanted to point out before we, uh, you know, got into the character moments is I, I love how just again with the cinematography, just with the adherence, it's one of the stuff that again, like early Game of Thrones was really, really fucking good at, which is just again taking all the little like action set, like all the extras, all the different like set pieces, and just kind of cluing you in, like just again, like just into the residual humanity of them. Where so much of the time, right? And, and again, this is another piece that I feel like they pulled from Helm's Deep, where the soldiers they look miserable they look scared they look exhausted who knows how long they've been stuck on these goddamn ships you know you see the one soldier just vomiting into the pot you know it's like it, it, it really is i feel like reminiscent of like what soldiers would have had to go through back in the day when they were prepping for these battles they didn't know how long it was going to take there obviously not every person was as well informed as the other you know they kind of had to rely on word of mouth there wasn't just that instant text chain it's like it's really really well done i think yeah, and I, I agree, agree with you, Dom. Like, uh, you know, I know I'm skipping ahead, but uh, after the explosions go off, there's a moment where a, a random soldier speaks to Stannis and says, hey, if we land and we attack the beach, hundreds will die. And Stannis just nonchalantly says, no, it's it's thousands. Yeah. You know, it's like many more are going to die and we're still going to do this because – uh, we we still have the advantage. And I think that sort of very realistic, like, you know, war is a matter of like, hey, all, our men might die, but mm -hmm. at least we'll take mm -hmm. the city. You know, that's it, it's a reality in which this show sort of brings to the forefront that I think. Uh, really works in this episode. Absolutely. Yeah. Eric is already chipping in. And Eric is actually bringing up some really interesting points. So Eric actually said that after this episode of Watchers on the Wall, we didn't get an episode that was set entirely in one location until Long Night and the Bells in the last season. I was just remembering. I'm like, holy shit, he's right. Because even Hard Home and Battle of the Bastards had other storylines happening in them. And he also says, I don't think Thanos was quite in the pop culture zeitgeist. Hey, there, he was at the end of the first Avengers, which was around the same time that this episode aired. So, hey, I don't think I'm too far off there eric but uh then we obviously zoom in on davos and mathos they're uh they, you know they're just you know having some like pre-battle discussions right there they're discussing their past like mathos is saying it's like hey you know you're home in king's landing that's where davos used to say and he said never thought i'd be leading a fleet into the into the battle you know and um what's it called of course that you know up until the end davos is still teaching his son's less his son lessons right because mathos is saying like oh hey um you know, the, the bells, you know, they're, they're going to they're gonna see us as the rightful heirs. And he's like, and Davos has to like kind of clue him into like the realities of war. It's like, look, these are just people here, you know, to them. You know, this is people who are just trying to go about their day to them. We are nothing more than conquerors. We are conquerors until we take over and then we are the new rulers. You know, that's all it is. You know, it, it's kind of like I think this really, again, just these simple ways of expressing just the differences between the social classes as far as what is important versus what really isn't, you know, which is as far as that, like kind of the, the thing about like ordinary people in the mindset is they kind of don't, they, they don't really have any aversions or like major, let's say opposition to like rulers until they really are in place. You know, people have asked, you know, how are people allowed for tyrants to come into power so easily in history? And this is the reason why, because again, they usually, they don't realize it until it's too late. And I think that this conversation is like, a really interesting way of kind of like uh, what's it called of, of making us aware of that. And then you cut to King's Landing where you see um, Tyrion in bed with Shay. Tyrion 
you know, they're talking about it. Tyrion is obviously like, he hasn't slept at all. Like he's exhausted. He's been awake all night. He knows that this is coming. He's like, all right, but we, we prep for this as much as we can, but it's kind of like, you know, all that, like that last minute when you're like getting ready for a test, you know, I, I know that you're kind of like on the opposite end of the spectrum now as a teacher, but like back in the day when you were getting ready for your test and you'd studied your ass off and you'd prepped as hard as you could for it, but you were still waiting because there was like, there was that one extra question that was going to be on there that you hadn't prepped for. And like, you so you're kind of like keeping yourself up at, at night. It, it's, he's kind of feeling that right now, as far as that goes. And he, he has another bit of eerie foreshadowing. There's a lot of that that happens in this episode. Where he says, obviously, you know, if Stannis takes the city, then he's going to burn every Lannister that he gets his hands on alive, you know? And I'm like, so so question for you here about this moment. Eerie foreshadowing concerning, you know, building up to the bells, especially considering that even though it's not Stannis, that is kind of exactly what ends up happening to King's Landing in the end? Well, I think the whole show is focused around, like, King's Landing being burned. So you're talking about the past tense, you know, the dragons and how they destroy, you know, Harrenhal, for instance. It's one of those things where, like, burning down a city is part of this world. And therefore, having Stannis do it or later on, you know, where it's going to be the dragons come back and they actually uh, do it in that Bells episode – you know, I, I think it's one of those things that is simmering the whole entire series. Yeah, so it's one of those things where, again, because the books weren't finished by this point. So it was, they adapted it, obviously, up to a certain point. But obviously, you know, once we got past, like, season five, that's when things, like, really started to, like, coalesce and really, you know, Game of Thrones almost took on this new life, this new identity of its own. So, but I do find it interesting where... Obviously, Benioff and Weiss with those later seasons are still paying homage to some of these earlier seasons. So they are still pulling essentially from the book. So even though it's not technically what Martin envisioned, it's still like kind of this really interesting what if scenario. You know, we're, we're going to talk a lot about kind of the what if and what is going to happen in Martin's final two books if and when he ever releases them as far as how they differentiate from the last couple seasons, what they do end up including from the last couple seasons, because we know obviously that Martin still contributed a fair decent amount. Of, of story of story stuff for Benioff and Weiss to adapt for those last three seasons that were past the books. But so we move on and, and the, uh, you know, in the second to last setup scene, we have Pycelle bringing Essence of Nightshade, which is a very powerful and fast acting poison to Cersei, although she doesn't explain why. I, I think that Cersei's whole storyline is probably like the most underrated aspect of this entire episode. A lot of people talk about the battle, but the stuff with Cersei is absolutely magnificent, I think. And it finally ends, of course, with um, Bronn and the Lannister soldiers. I think they're singing the reigns of Castamere. I'm not sure. But um, then and, and Bronn is talking to a prostitute about the number of times that he's broken his nose. Then the Hound arrives. And I wanted to talk to you about this scene real quick. So obviously the Hound, he's our focus character for this episode. But he's he, and he's got a pretty significant storyline in this episode. But like, I don't know. Why, why do you think he's looking to pick a fight with Bronn here? Well, I think. Bo- basically both are like-minded so bronze in the sort of tavern already drinking he's having fun he's relaxing he's not really too concerned about the war uh, i guess he assumes he's going to survive it and then the hound comes in to have a drink and really i would imagine like calm his nerves before the whole fight takes place and that's when he sees Braun, and he sees Braun being very flippant and it's it's one of those things, I think, when you have two hired knights, you know, obviously Bronze is a sellsword for Tyrion. The Hound is basically pledged to the Lannisters. Uh, but mainly the two of them are killers. And, you know, it, the Hound thinks he's better at it. The, the Hound actually thinks he's more noble. Um, you know, Bronze is just basically doing this for money. Um, you know, and so I think the tension here in this particular scene is the distinction between them you know is there honor amongst killers and you know i think the hound thinks there there is and and part of the tension is the hound uh thinks that Braun should probably be uh you know stomped out <laughs> yeah it's it's always interesting kind of the hound's twisted sense of justice and it kind of again it wraps up with his final moment in sans with sansa in this episode where again he 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 views himself as this you know this bastard this this old you know this killer but in a weird way he still has his own sense of noble justice so again it is kind of ironic the fact that again he even admits to Bronn that it's like okay we are both hired killers but i you know i know why i kill you know, you just kill for money, you know? So it was like, there is kind of a difference between the two. And the two stand up, they are about to come to live. It really is disappointing because we really don't get a moment like this ever again throughout the course of the show because the, the Hound obviously goes off and does his thing and Bronn obviously stays and has his adventures in King's Landing. 
but it really sucks. I'm like, I'm not going to lie. A, a Hound versus Braun fight, I would be interested to see what the odds are, you know, because I feel like every in every sense, the Hound has got all the advantages as far as, like, the brute strength goes. Like, nobody can best the Hound in brute strength except for except for his brother. But Braun, again, he's got the Cell Sword's Edge. You know, there's a reason why he survived pretty much every fight he's been in. He's quick. He's sharp. He analyzes his, his opponent's maneuvers. You know, he doesn't have any excess things in order to weigh him down. You know, he's all about finding the weak spots on someone. So I, it's definitely kind of like a, a little bit of a David and Goliath situation, but it is it is something that I would be interested to see because I don't necessarily know if there's one obvious winner here. But yeah, I think the episode does a really good job at this because we see Braun once the fighting actually begins, we see him sort of take on like two or three sort of of Stannis's men, and he's able to sort of you know kill them really quickly, uh, striking multiple blows, and I think he slits the the throat of the final one. Um, you know, so he's really they're giving the characterization of what type of fighter he is. And then when they show the hound in the midst of the battle, you know, he literally chops someone in half, which is one of the most (laughs) ridiculous shots I've ever seen. Oh, it's so um, dumb, but I love it. Yeah. It's, but the hound has that strength where he on human strength to really just like destroy someone by cutting them in half. And I think that's the nuances that they do in this show, game of Thrones that, they're able to go to those character details and show some of those nuances. And I think, you know, having this scene in the tavern where you're sort of setting up the two at odds and then sort of the fighting breaks out, uh, it really gives you reason to pay attention to what they do during the battle. Uh, because, you know, you have that on your mind that these two are warriors and they, they wanted to fight each other. But at the same time, now the battles come to them and what can they do? And Absolutely. I think I think those shots and, and the, the scenes that they're involved in uh, are really elevated by this tavern scene. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 so well done. Again, like I I don't I can't I can't overstate this enough. Which is that even though this is a primarily action set piece based episode, the the the, the storytelling within the, all of the characters that we're following throughout this episode is some of the best that the show has to offer. Just again, from a subliminal standpoint, how we get really into the heads and really understand all of these characters throughout the course of this season that we've come to know over the last two seasons in ways that like we really didn't before. So we have one more scene before we head into the battle. Obviously where um, but Tyrion is getting armored up by Podrick Payne and he's having one last conversation with Varys. And Varys, again, it's, it's a little bit of subtle hinting as far as like what Varys is going to really clue Tyrion into next season, which is that Varys tells Tyrion kind of, you know, why he is so opposed to having Stannis of all the kings on the throne, you know, due to, um, what's it called? You know, due to the fact that Stannis now worships the Red God and the idea of someone burning people mercilessly you know, against their will, and, and also somebody that worships sorcery. He um, absolutely abhors it. It's kind of cluing him into, you know, his own hatred and mistrust of of, of magic. That, and then, then he, he does a little bit of a subtle hinting as far as, like, you know, how he's been cut. Again, I do find it absolutely hilarious that, again, so v- Varys is so against Stannis, you know, becoming leader because he doesn't want Stannis to burn everyone alive and, he does, and because of Stannis believing in the Red God but then still goes to work for Daenerys and the same thing happens. It's like, I get it. He starts to like work against her. Once he, she, he finds out that she's going a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, but it's like, still like, come on, like Varys, it really sucks because Varys is, Varys' motivations are so clearly outlined and they're, and, and, and they do such a good job of like, again, m- never making you know where his loyalties lie until they clue you in on like these little subliminal character moments. And it just sucks because again, I really think of all the characters that are done dirty by the last two seasons. Varys is probably like one of the worst examples because, Oh man, it, it, it just makes no sense as far as that goes. Um, and then we get another great scene. Well, I think, you know, for Varys, it's everything set up for him to go support Daenerys. And that's the person. It seems like he chose the right, you know, person, uh, but, you know, in the end for him, you know, no matter all his little whispers and, and scheming and all that type of stuff, like, you know, he is basically uh, flawed in some way. Like he, he chose the wrong leader in essence. And, you know, I don't think it, it's really, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, they basically figure it out and solve the problem. But <laughs> more or less, like Varys truly goes with what he believes uh, and then it's he's wrong. 
you know, yeah. by the end of this uh, series. Yeah, it's just it's so disappointing. Again, I, I don't really know if Martin had intended for something like this to happen to Varys because Varys was always a character that always seemed to be on the right side of things. You know, every single time it seemed like there was going to be like a coming conflict, Varys always seemed to be on the right side of things. So it would make sense for his character arc to resolve in something where, okay, wow, so of course his end comes from when he finally makes the choice where he thinks he's going to be on the right side and then it comes back to bite him. It's just just execution. Execution was just done so poorly. So we get one more awesome scene before we really get into the midst of the fighting and the midst of the main storyline where everyone's kind of moving to where they're going in the throne room. Everyone's going off to their one location. You know, Tyrion's giving these one set of instructions to Bronn. They have this one hilarious interaction before they go where it's like, it's like, please don't die. And it's like, oh, we're friends now. And he's like, of course we're friends. Just because I pay you doesn't mean that we're not, doesn't mean that it affects our friendship. And he's like, it enhances it, really. It's like, I just, I love the back and forth between these two. It's hilarious, ultimately. And then, of course, we have one more scene with Sh- with Sansa and Joffrey before ultimately kind of, you know, their ultimate parting of the ways in the next episode. Finally, where Joffrey forces Sansa to kiss um, to kiss his sword. Um, Heart Eater is the one that he names this one. This is his second of three swords that he would have. But uh, I-, I also wanted to point out because this is- there's also a lot of awesome stuff going on uh, with-, with Sansa in this episode as well. Obviously, you know, Tyrion, Cersei, the Hound, Bronn. They're like our focus characters, you know, not so much Davos and Stannis. But um, but also there's a lot going on subliminally with Sansa in this episode too, where Sansa kind of she's talking to Joffrey, she's asking him, "Will you lead the vanguard?" You know, and then he's like, uh, "You know, he's like, no, what kind of a stupid question is that?" And then she's like, "Oh, of course, my lord. You know, my brother, my traitor brother Rob, he always leads the vanguard. You know, trying to kind of trying to bait him by playing his ego by trying yeah. to be like, okay, well, I, th- I think Sansa basically is starting to play the game a little bit. Like she yeah. knows she's trapped." She knows she's a prisoner against her will, but for the most part, she is able to outwit him verbally. And I think she's right. able to take advantage of that really for the first time here in this episode. And she gets away with it. Absolutely. For the most part, you know, Joffrey is not going to necessarily attack her in these scenes. And he's too busy worried about the war, but Sans is able to get his dig or her dig in. Um, you know, and, and just basically make it clear that uh, Joffrey is not really that great of a king. Well, it's more than that. It's the sense of like she is smarter than him. At the end of the day, even though you know she still doesn't have that that much experience relative in as far as leading, she is smarter than him. At the end of the day, and he because he is ultimately somebody who, well, would. Ultimately, because they think about it this way, right? Sansa and Joffrey, right? They're obviously two separate perspectives, right? But one one was prepped for their role kind of in the future, right? Sansa was prepped from minute one that she was going to marry this high lord and be his lady and all that. And then obviously her arc comes from, you know, just a vast ripping of ripping away of the whole you know, you know that whole concept of high lords and ladies and noblemen and all that once she learns what people really are but joffrey has been very very ill prepared for his roles came because cersei's entire priority as a mother was never to prepare her children for their rightful roles but always to keep them safe because cersei's mistake was always relying on the fact that kind of their inherent power would keep her children safe and i think part of a big reason for her kind of destabilization in this episode is the fact that this is kind kind of her rude awakening to the fact that no, nothing can keep her children safe because at the end of the day, Joffrey is king and he has to make an example by leading the troops. Ultimately, no one will acknowledge him as king. It's not even a matter of like his birthright is up for dispute. Like his just his right as a king, just based on like the fact that it is his role to defend and protect his people is up for debate right now. And, th- and this is the moment ultimately. And it's, it's a very precarious situation that she finds herself in ultimately kind of the thing that the, you know, the position of power that is so protected her family versus the things that they need to do in order to maintain that power, in order to maintain their protection. So then um, Cersei, Sansa, Shay, and Tommen, they're all off in their one room hiding with all the high noble ladies. And it begins again, a series of dialogue interactions that are some of the best. Again, we, we talk about like with just certain dialogue scenes between certain characters. They are just the right the writers. And again, this is Martin writing this episode. So like these are his characters, his baby. And the dialogue is just on point where Cersei is drunk out of her mind. She's pissed off. She's miserable. She's claustrophobic. She's angry. She's bitchy. Yeah, she's, well, she, I think the main thing is that she's suicidal because she yes. assumes that, you know, she immediately Stannis is going to win. Yeah, she's Stannis like, is going to win. We have Tyrion. And Joffrey to lead us. We're fucked. Yeah, At least in her mind. Most, I, I, yeah, I guess that's fair enough. It, it, mainly, she is thinking that Stannis is going to take the castle. All the women are going to be, you know, uh, 
sexually assaulted. Right. By yeah. The, she the man, she even says know. it. She she even says it's like wow, all of these oh, women yeah. are in for for a, for a good rape. I'm like Jesus Christ. Yeah. She's very on the nose, and she's talking to Sansa. Yes. But loud enough so everyone in the chamber can hear, which is. Hey, great. You want to be oh, it's so with, good. Uh, suicidal Cersei. That's yeah, right? <laughs> suicidal Cersei. That should be that should be yeah. a thing that we put in like a problem. That, that'll come up later on when we hit the bells later on. Suicidal Cersei. Yeah, so uh, the main thing is she's drinking the wine. She's telling Sansa, you better drink the wine because you're not going to like the end of this evening either. Right. Uh, because you're young. You're, you're the perfect target, so to speak. And she also says, you know, you better use your womanhood uh, to convince Stannis to keep you safe, you know, more or less that's what she's talking about is, you know, basically trying to use her position as a Stark and the fact that she's, you know, a young, attractive woman to, you know, make sure that, uh, one of the Lords sort of protects her in some sort of way from the gruesome, you know, um, possibilities that any random soldier will, you know, take part of it's an interesting sequence because even though it's kind of just cersei venting and kind of venting out her frustrations on the fact that like she is suicidal and she is not at all confident on the outcome of this battle and it's interesting because i would say that probably like you know sansa talks a lot in the later seasons about how much she did learn from cersei even though she absolutely despises her and abhors her but sansa does learn a lot from cersei in this scene like cersei does in all of her haste kind of again it just proves that cersei is not nearly you know, playing off the point from the previous episode about Cersei not being nearly as smart as she thinks she is. Cersei gives Sansa a lot of like really decent advice as far as that goes, you know, as far as like how to use your womanhood, you know, because again, like there, there was not a lot of, you know, positions where women could actually like be able to like act independently and get what they want. So like they had to do what they had to do in order to survive, you know? And oh, yeah. but Cersei that- basically has that whole line about like, I wish I was born a man, etc. Right. You know, it's one of those things where the gender roles, you know, in this particular world are laid out in this scene and it's not really that great for them. And it's sort of like the message from Cersei to Sansa is make do, do what you can. And, you know, unfortunately that's like the hard reality of this sort of world uh, in which they're in. Yeah, absolutely. And again, the the last bit before we move on to the actual battle, which is where they see that Ellen Payne, obviously, you know, famously Ned Stark's executioner, is standing guard there. And Sansa asks why he's there. Cersei says, oh, to protect us, you know. And she's like, uh, and then obviously, you know, when one of the Kingsguard members comes in later on and says that they've caught some thieves, somebody trying to, like, steal some stuff. She's like, our first traitors of the night, you know, go on and hang them and use them as an example. Then she says to Sansa, you know, it's like, uh, what's it called? If you let even the, even the slightest of... Uh, what's it called? Uh, of of atrocities go, then it'll come back to bite you later on. So it's like so best to start learning. And she's like, how are? And she's kind of asked, how are they traitors? You know, it, it, it's very very interesting stuff. It's a, it's amazingly well written. But so now we get into again, like this is one of the most again just across the history of battles in media. This is probably one of the most ingenious maneuvers ever, where you talk about setup and payoff, all the little seeds that have been building with Tyrion. And again, from the minute he arrived in King's Landing at the beginning of this season up until now, as far as with, with defending King's Landing, defending their home, you know, they get up to the ramparts, they start to see the ships. Joffrey's like, where is our fleet? You know, and, and you know, and Tyrion's like, oh, don't worry about it. They'll be here. And of course, they have that little barb where Joffrey tries to assert himself. They, there's a bunch of clever little wordplay with Tyrion trying barbs with Lancel and the Hound. And then, he's, and then he's like, you know, I can order the Hound to chop your head off at any moment. He's like, well, then I would be a quarter of a man. And, you know, it doesn't have nearly the it doesn't have nearly the same ring to it. Like again, just the one liners. It's good to know that even under pressure, Tyrion is Tyrion is not at all lost when it comes to comedic material. Because again, I'm not kidding when I say this episode is the other half of Peter Dinklage's Emmy reel for me. Because again, just the, the acting here is absolutely spectacular. So we see the one solo ship sailing into the bay. It confuses both sides because Joffrey thinks that it's one of Stannis' ships. Davos sees the ship coming towards them and is like, what the hell? Why is only one ship coming towards them? You know, they're like, okay, be careful. It gets up close and personal. Davos sees the wildfire spilling out from the ship, realizes too late that it's a trap, tries to warn the rest of the fleet. It's too late. Tyrion throws out the alert, the signal to Bronn. Bronn ups yeets the arrow up again perfect aim on bronze part like perfect aim like, again not to be a dud like it, it's almost kind of embarrassing how in the next season when we are, we're introduced to Edmure tully and he tries to fucking do the thing where he's shooting the arrow to his father's um you know funeral pyre yeah. and he misses like three times before his uncle has to do it it's like man talk about talk about like a talk about um you know a high bar to overcome because fucking bron 
nails that shit with one go, lights the entire fleet aflame, blows up the whole ship, kills Davos' son, Mathos. Davos is knocked off the, off the ship, at least for the time being, until it's revealed next season. We don't know if he's still alive, if he survived this at all. It's a, it's a, it's a visual spectacle, to say the least. And probably, like, the biggest use of their limited visual effects budget that they had at the time, up to date. Because, oh, man, it is impressive, to yeah, say the least. You I, know? I would say that the effects here are magnificent. It's just all these ships going aflame, you know, people dying, like... It really gives you that sense that you're there on the battlefield and that something devastating has happened to Stannis' army. That, you know, everything was like Stannis was going to come in, he was going to take King's Landing, no fuss, no muss. It was his for the taking. And now you have the wildfire go off and it's all game. For the rest of the episode, it's like... Game you know, on. Who Who's actually going to win? Because, you know, Tyrion and King's Landing and the, and the Lannisters, you know, had this great maneuver. But Stannis' immediate response is, oh, hey. That's he, all they had. Yeah, the imp has played his trick. Let's land. Yeah. automatically knows. I love how Stannis automatically knows that this is Tyrion. He's like, oh, yeah. There, there, there's no way that any other one of them were smart enough to be able to pull off something like that. This is easily Tyrion. Like, I don't know. It's like, is Tyrion's intelligence kind of really that well known and that well spread? Or do you think this is just like an educated guess on Stannis's part? You know, I would have to imagine that, you know, you have a network of spies for Varys that – the networks of spies exist for everybody. And for the most part, uh, I, I would say Stannis would be able to know that, you know, Tyrion is really in charge. Yeah, definitely. It, it's kind of beyond obvious at this point. Again, it just, it just really, it just makes it suck even more how in the later seasons, obviously when Tywin comes to King's Landing and it's just Tyrion's actual effort in the protection of the city is just so downplayed and to the point where even Tyrion himself is like, what the fuck, man? I saved all your guys' lives and this is the res- and this is the treatment and the response I get? Wow. Fuck all y'all. I, I absolutely am going to betray all you and go help Daenerys out. But the battle begins and oh man, it is, it is game fucking on. Stannis is like, okay, we're still marching for the city and the soldier is like, look, all that, that was like our entire fleet and he's like, you know, hundreds of people are going to die in the march of the city. And Stannis is like thousands, you know, again, it's, it's another example of Stannis's ultimate, uh, ultimate fatal flaw, which is just his unwilling relentlessness when it comes to compromise. Like Stannis will not compromise. Again, it's the thing that it's the same thing that gets him killed three seasons from now when he marches on the Bolton's army, you know, with a half starved army, heavily outnumbered. And he just, he will not back down on anything. So, but at least he's got a slightly more advantage here. He rose yeah. for King's Landing. This is the first of Stannis's major blunders because, you know, the Red Woman, Melisandre, basically says, like, hey, you can take King's Landing. The the Lord of Light has given you the A-OK. And it doesn't work. And we see this again and again. Like, anytime that there's a major thing that Stannis is going for that the Lord of Light gave him the A-OK. It, it just, just doesn't, doesn't work really in his favor. He is out. he is not he is not Azor Ahai, the the the, the what's it called the uh, the one born of insulted smoke. That that is not Stannis. I think I think yeah. it's beyond obvious here. So I think he he was part of the Lord of Light's plan, but the the plan was to really manipulate his ambition and allow for other players to really uh, come in strong uh, with their claim to the Iron Throne. Yes, absolutely. So they so they're laying waste to the walls. You know, they're lining up outside the walls. They get ladders going up. You know, they they're what's it called? They're 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 ramming the gate. You know, again, Stannis is a is, is a seasoned battle commander. He knows what he is right. doing. And, you know, well, he knows how to lay the siege. First he knows thing all is, the weak um, points. What is it like? Tyrion's like Clegane. You know, the hound. Yeah. Get a welcoming party, and they actually goes out with a bunch of men. Yeah, know, including Lancel Lannister, which again, I'm sorry, like, yeah. I know that the Hound is trying to make a point, but like, why of all people is he getting useless fucking Lancel Lannister? <laughs> well, hey, this this is a really big thing because they go out there, they they are brutally fighting. They're actually doing a pretty good job. You know, the Hound even says, like, at some point when he comes back into the gates, this is after the fire sort of like, uh, you know gives him an anxiety attack and he turns around and he just goes right back in the, to the, uh, you know, keep, uh, basically the hound, um, you know, is, um, what is it? He just, he's a ferocious warrior that, uh, you know, is leading the way. And it's, even though it's devastating, um, you know, he, he basically just gives up. Out. He gives you up. Know, he, he's he, trying to he have a panic sees, attack. Yeah, he, he, sees he has a panic attack. Wall. 
Yeah, and, and, well, well, before before we get into more of that, I just had a couple things. So obviously, of course, Lance will prove immediately be useless. He gets in like one good look and then gets shot in the chest with an arrow and immediately retreats. It's like, okay, yeah, so well, this character this is definitely going to go far. This is where uh, the seed is planted for Lancel in the later seasons when he finds the faith, right? Yes. Because he gets injured in this battle. He gets uh, basically talked down to by Cersei. And this whole experience, you know, for him is a negative one. And, and it's it's basically just like destroys his viewpoint of the Lannister family. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I I wanted to give out two one-liners that the Hound gives off. Again, like I, I think this is the beginning of like the Hound getting off some incredible one-liners. You know, the Hound was not a character that was known for some of his amazing one-liners, but he would he. I think this was the episode where the writers were like, okay, every chance we get, we're, we're gonna throw the, the Hound a one-liner. Where he first before he goes outside, he turns to the to the leader of the archers and he's like, if any of those flaming fucking arrows come near me, I'll strangle you with your own guts or something like that. And yeah. then when they get outside again, this is this, this is again just a, a one-liner for the ages and part by. French because that is so fucking good. There's no way I can mince words here. Where as they walk outside, his exact words are if any man dies with a clean sword, I'll rape his fucking corpse. And I'm just like, wow. <laughs> like, yeah, goddamn. That's, that's a crazy motivational speech, I guess. <laughs> you know, um, to say the I least. Guess- it, you know, it, it's that's possibly the reality of war. It's you know, possibly you're marching into a certain death, and so you're you're, you know, I don't know. You're you're just sort of throwing that out there. You're like basically saying like if you don't go out there and give it your all and kill some of these men, I'll kill you myself. Which is ironic yeah. considering the fact that that's exactly what the Hound does because the Hound is out there. He gets a few good licks and like you said, he literally chops a guy in half. Fucking, <laughs> he sees <laughs> he sees how, the, you know, Bronn slicing and dicing. You know, Bronn, you know, shoots an arrow and actually saves him uh, for a quick second. And then he freezes. If he freezes when he sees the fire and he immediately retreats inside, Tyrion even asked him, he's like, oh, you know, he's like, fuck the water, bring me wine. Tyrion's like, oh, do you want a bowl of cherries and maybe some whipped cream to go with that or something like that? He's like, we need you to lead our forces. You know, you know the situation is bad when even when Joffrey and Tyrion are actually agreeing on something where they're both trying to get the Hound to go outside and fight. You know things are fucked then. And the Hound famously utters his lines, fuck the, fuck the war, fuck the fire, fuck the king. Like, he is done. Like, fire is the one thing that is, like, that's the one thing that he cannot do. And he retreats, ultimately. He he puts his tail between his legs, and he retreats. And then Joffrey, slowly afterwards, is brought away from the battle by Lancel. Lancel goes consult with Cersei. Cersei is like, I don't really care what you want. Um, What's it called? You know, go get my son and bring him back inside. She then leaves the encampment. She's had it. She's like, fuck it. If I'm going to die, I'm going to die out in the open. I'm not going to die cooped up in here with everyone else. Sansa tries to calm everyone down. And then Shay actually tells Sansa to get to her quarters and actually says something really smart where she's like, hey, um, you know, get to your quarters. You know, Stannis is not going to kill you. The, you know, referring to Ellen Payne, Ellen Payne will, you know, because at the very least, I don't know. I don't know if Shay's related to the fact that like Sansa can like use her womanly nature to like work on Stannis or maybe the fact that like because she is a Stark in King's Landing and Stannis again, we don't really know. But if, if Stannis really has any affection for the Starks, but obviously, you know, Ned Stark was a supporter of his claim. So, you know, maybe he will give Sansa some mercy. Either way, Shay knows that for, from Sansa's perspective, she will be better off with with in her room than with Stannis's forces. And the whole thing that happens afterwards is something really interesting where you have Sansa going into her room and you have kind of the, the, you know, the last time that her and the Hound will see each other for a bit where the Hound and Sansa, again, it's kind of the payoff to that scene that they had a couple of episodes ago, episodes ago where the Hound saved her from all the would-be, her would-be rapist. And then when he confronted her about, you know, men loving killing and all that, and they have this like kind of, you know, this, this final, you know, encounter where he's in her room. And she volunteers to bring her home. You know, he says he's leaving the city. He's going to go somewhere, anywhere without the fire. And he volunteers to bring her home. And she refuses. She says no for the first time. You know, in the books, the way that it was played up is that it's played up as like, okay, she doesn't know whether this is a trick or not. But in the but in this instance, I don't know. what, What do you think his motivations are for in this instance? You know, I think in this sequence, you know, Sansa, first of all, you know, when, when uh, Cersei decides to leave and everyone's freaking out, uh, Sansa's basically, let's sing a hymn. 
Um, you know, like after Cersei. Uh, I mean, I guess like as far as like Westerosi, like, you know, soothing techniques, it's probably like one of the only ones. Yeah. But after Cersei poisons the pool and says, you're all going to have bastard children in the next six, you know, months. You Pretty know, loudly you too. Signs, like, it's it's like um, a him might not do it. I don't maybe know. Maybe not. You, know, you tell me. It's maybe everyone's trying to just like calm down, escape, hope for the best. Sansa is showing some leadership here by leading that him and saying, no, Joffrey is fighting. Joffrey is doing a great job. You know, it's clear that she's lying to them, but Sansa is showing some sort of leadership. And, you know, uh, Shay ushers her away, go to the room. And before she realizes the hound is there, she looks toward the doll that Ned Stark gave her in the first season and sort of, you know, comes to this realization of like, you know, this this was like this doll was the last potential chance I had of having a childhood and I sort of rejected it. And, you know, it's it's a sentimental thing for her. And she, she seems to be like packing it, you know, ready to go. And then the hound does that offer of like, hey, I'm going north. Do you want to come with me? And I think it's what Shay said, you know, that uh, Stannis, because Stannis is an ally of, of Ned, I think, you know, that's that's what makes her stay. She's like, oh, Stannis won't hurt me. Stannis will actually be sort of a protector. And, you know, I, I think, you know, maybe in the book it's a little more clear that it might be like a, sort of a trick. But I think more or less, like, you can see it on uh, Sansa's face that uh, she doesn't really trust the Hound. Yeah. Uh, and she's going to put her trust in Stannis solely because of the fact that he is the rightful king. Right. At least for now, ultimately, you know, before he later goes on and dies. But, of, but so this is the last that we see of the hound, at least for the time being, you know, but he leaves her with one interesting message, but that kind of, I feel like ties together everything that he's trying to been trying to, you know, let her in on throughout the season, which is that all men are killers, you know, at the end of the day, just remember that if you take nothing else away from that, remember that. And then of course you go back to again, Probably one of Tyrion's most badass moments. Like I said, this is the back half of his Emmy reel where Joffrey leaves. The soldiers are slowly losing faith. They're slowly wondering what to do. And Tyrion, of course, riles it together with one of the best speeches ever in history. Where he's like, they say that I'm half a man. Well, then what does that make all of you? You know, it's, it's, I'm like straight up like they're William Wallace. Uh, what's what, what's well, his name? Uh, Aragorn uh, first, from Lord of the Rings and first, Tyrion you're, Lannister. You're, you're missing the part where he gets the courage, right? Because he's like... I'll I'll lead the charge. He's the right, like he gotta have to lead mushrooms top of a bit. Yeah, you're right. Like like yeah, he's very up. like this week. I'll lead I'll lead the charge. Like, and then he's like, oh, then no, I'll, I'll lead, lead the, the charge. charge. It's like you gotta have to yeah. build himself up. And then of course, when the men are like, there is like there are we can't go through the gate. Like there's guys right there, and he's like, I know another way because right before Varys showed him a map of all the tunnels leading underneath the city, he's like, yeah, don't worry, I know a way. Worth. Yeah, hey, whatever works, right? And then and then afterwards, he's like, um, you know, don't fight for riches, don't fight for glory, don't fight for any of that because you won't get any of it. You know, fight because it's your home. It's your home. This is your city that Stannis is trying to take. You know, those are brave men knocking at our door. Let's go kill them. It's short. To the point, and it's one of the best speeches in the history of, of of battle cinema. They go underneath the tunnels, they come out, and they ambush Stannis's forces. You know, Stannis has managed to climb up under the wall. Stannis is getting into quite a few licks to himself. There's this one really cool shot where Stannis literally cuts off the top of a guy's head and oh, yeah. a couple of bullets. That was, you know, out. I. I hate to bring up other uh, intellectual property, but that was some real Hannibal Lecter talk. Oh, absolutely. It was so awesome. It was just, it was so awesome. So Tyrion actually, again, does, does a pretty cool thing where he chops off one guy's limb. There's a lot of just like limbs being chopped off and like spurts of blood getting out. Like the, the festival effects team really had a lot of fun with this episode where, you know, the blood spurts out that he chops the guy off. They managed to take out the soldiers that are trying to ram the gate. They seem to be doing pretty well at first. And then, you know, everyone's cheering him on. And then he turns around and the, oh, Fuck says it all as they see like fucking like 300 more men just charging at them. They try to hold them off. Everything seems lost. Tyrion is, you know, Tyrion is still fighting his heart out. Uh, you know, he's saved by Kingsguard man member Sir Mandon Moore. And all of a sudden, Sir Mandon Moore raises up his sword and slices at Tyrion's face down, you know, you know, giant scar right down Tyrion's face. You know, how he managed to miss that, I don't know. I'm assuming that he's just, that this guy is either like a really bad swordsman or the fact that like he's not used to trying to cut at someone this short. But either way, like it, it, like this, this this Kingsguard member tries to kill him. 
you know, surmanded more. In the books, the damage is a lot worse. It's like they almost made it like that half his face was like carved off, you know. But it's like I, I guess they like logistics wise, they they couldn't really do it. So I guess that you know they do a little bit of a scar. That's a little bit of an homage to you know the late great Michael K. Williams. You know his scar and Omar from The Wire, rest in peace. Um, but Tyrion is later saved. By um by his loyal squire, Podrick Payne. Podrick's first major moment that shows that he's a character to be worth following throughout the rest of the show when he kills Sermanid by stabbing him in the back of the head with a spear. And then he cuddles, and then he, you know, cuddles Tyrion. Um, you know, and you know, kind of protects him. Cersei and Tommen are in the king's room are, are in the throne room. Cersei is telling Tommen this story in order to try and like console him, you know, co- you know, coach him, you know, make sure that it's like she's about to she's about to she's about to kill her kid. She's like, fuck it, like well, I am she, not letting she's, a- she's about to kill the kid and herself. This yeah. is the ultimate suicide pact that yeah. uh Tomlin really you know it, he he is sort Early of Tommen, like, before he becomes extra useless. He, he, useless he, to extra yeah, useless. He he dodged a bullet because in the scene where, you know, uh, Cersei is basically being real with Sansa and all the women there, uh, Tomlin can be seen in the background just passed out. He, he's like asleep <laughs> during this, this yeah, right? rampage. Um, well, he, and it's like, he was good. He doesn't know that his mom's literally about to kill him. Yeah, yeah. So he's just totally unaware. And, you know, obviously how this ends is – you know, she's ready to commit suicide. Uh, Tyrion is, you know, laying in Podrick's arms, like, you know, can't really do anything. He's about to pass out so we can do a nice little jump uh, cut to later on, just like in the first season. And you know, <laughs> and then basically a force comes in. You want to see, you, you want to talk about the first of many deuce ex machinas, but here it works yeah. because again, like it, it's a good fulfillment of the last episode where Tywin left from, from Harrenhal. He made it clear that you weren't sure whether he was going out to fight Rob's forces or whether he was going to back up King's Landing. And it looks like he made the smarter call because he ultimately, not only that, not only his forces, not only did he make the smart call, but he also made the smart call in having, in you know, in taking Littlefinger's advice because he rides up with the Tyrells backing them up. You know, obviously it's a, it's made a big thing obviously that loris tyrell is leading the tyrell forces and is wearing renly's armor so everyone assumes that it's the ghost of renly that's come to back up tywin lannister you know in order to help rally the men to fight off stannis it's, it's really interesting they don't really harp on that in this episode but this force comes out of nowhere they manage to fight off the rest of the of the baratheon forces stannis is forced to retreat not the first time that he's going to be forced to do that and i love how he is so intent on continuing to fight that like his men literally have to drag him away they're like this battle is lost ultimately and the ending shot, again, just a badass shot at the end where Tywin walks into the throne room uh, right right as Cersei is about to feed Tom in the poison. You know, Loras comes in first, pulls off the hood. Cersei is kind of confused at first. She's like, what's going on? And then Tywin marches in. She drops the poison. And he's like, the battle is over. We have won. You know, and yeah. it's it, and I will say that it's an interesting character thing for Cersei is that she pours the poison out, breaks the bottle, uh, almost like she's embarrassed that she was yeah. about to do that. You know, that she didn't have faith in her father or like she was taking a coward's way out. It's not something that Tywin probably would have approved of. And, you know, she tries to hide it. I don't think they they you know, we'll bring this up in any way in future episodes, but it's a very interesting character moment that's placed there where it's like, Oh, I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed to be caught with this poison. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Eric also brought up an interesting point. It's like, yeah, I can imagine that would have been an unnecessary pain to have to CGI off Peter Dinklage's nose for the rest of the year. I don't know. I feel like they, they had the money. You know, I feel like they could have done it. You know, yeah, I, I think comes- that I'm joking that it's more Benny off and Weiss is just laziness when it came to like, especially those later couple seasons. But it also comes down to actors are known for that. Yeah, that too. And that you too. don't want to manipulate too much if you don't have to. Yeah, that's true. Especially also because like Tyrion in the books is a lot uglier than the Tyrion and that we get in the show. You know, Tyrion in the show is like it's Peter Dinklage. You know, he's he's a pretty good looking dude. You know, all, all things considered, and uh, Tyrion Tyrion in the books is not at all that 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 good looking. But so we have it. We have our first major battle sequence of the episode before we got out of here i just wanted to talk real quick about like kind of how this compares to, like certain of the penultimates going forward where this would again set up the precedent of where it's almost like every other penultimate is like the penultimates would either be like this really plot centric episode that would end with this gigantic twist or it would be the action you know the action set piece battle episodes you know and then the last season they kind of did it with both where so it's like for the first six seasons it was like all of the uh, it's like the odd episode so it's like you had baylor which was you know, major ma- major story functions until Ned Stark's death. Then you have this episode, which is a battle. Then you have Reigns of Castamere, which is major story functions that lead up to the Red Wedding. And then the fourth season is the Battle of the Wall. And then the fifth season where things start to change it up because the fifth season, the, pen- the primary penultimate episode, the big moment is 
of the Dragon Pit episode. That's what it ends. So it's a little bit of both where there is a lot of plot that goes on, but it ends with the Dragon Pit episode. And then the season six is, so you get two battles actually, because you get obviously the Battle of the Bastards, but then you also get, you know, the battle in Murine as well, which again is, is a little bit, I, I definitely think that's another one where it's like, okay, yeah, we, we got we to gotta rush ahead with this for time's sake. So as far as how this goes to the previous penultimate episode, Pat, so we've, we've got two penultimate episodes now in the bag now. So if you had to pick between this and Baylor, which one would you go with? Hey, the this one Blackwater is so far the best episode of the series. You know, from you know obviously season two, episode nine, and before. I think everything that you want from uh, developing the web of characters and building up to sort of a climactic moment, uh, this really pays off for you know obviously the the past uh, eighteen episodes worth of content. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, it really changes the dynamic for what's you know, to come ahead, um, which is even better. Yeah, absolutely. So would you say that so far of the 19 episodes that we've seen so far, that this is your favorite? Yeah, I, I would say that, uh, I, I really enjoy Blackwater and, um, you know, Hey, it's, it's, there's just so many good scenes where it's, you know, the, the brawn hound scene, uh, and they're back and forth banter, Cersei and Sansa in that chamber. There's a lot of good, thi- uh, there, uh, Tyrion and Joffrey and uh, Lancel all and and the Hound on the battlefield, like all this sort of good dialogue, great scenes. Um, you know, it's the battle stuff is cool. It's it's great to see actually some fighting for the first time. Uh, but the fact is, it's paired with a lot of good writing. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it shows writing is key. First and foremost, you want to do a good, you want to have a good story, have some damn good characters, have them in some really high stakes and, uh, you know, get some good writers at the end of the day, because that is ultimately what makes great drama. It's what makes great television. So again, that's our second penultimate in the books, people. That was the Battle of Blackwater. More of a commentary than an episode recap, but I definitely think that it is one of the best episodes easily that the show has to offer only surprisingly enough with with all the merciless amounts of death counts we really only had two major character deaths obviously the king's guard member sir mandon more that padra killed and then davos's son matthew seaworth that died at the beginning of the episode and that is it people that was our penultimate episode we've got one episode left of season two before we get into season three so let us know your thoughts on the battle of blackwater down below be sure to click the like button click the subscribe button be sure to keep coming back to the channel for more content professor pat where can the good people find you Hey, you can listen to me on the Talking TV sort of podcast and uh, the YouTube channel. And, uh, you know, also, hey, I'll post something on Instagram, I swear, at Patrick W. Huber at some point in time. At some point, you can, of course, find me on Facebook and Instagram at Movie Nerd Reviews. But more importantly, follow the podcast channel at Talking TV Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, where I post every single day, twice a day. Content wise, again, Chris and I have our Malignant and Card Counter review going up tomorrow for the podcast this week for Halloween. First time watch, we've got Halloween, the the curse of Michael Myers. And I might have a variety show up this week. I might not with me and AJ talking about a lot of stuff that happened in the world of movies. But until next time, people. We'll see you guys next week for the season two finale as the Battle of the Thrones continues. 12 seasons in a short film and watch more fucking movies. See you guys next time. Make more wildfire, man. Indeed. Make more wildfire. Make more wildfire.